From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. It started with a wedding gift. I love that. That's like the beginning of our book. I like that. Starting with a wedding gift. This week on our show, we give a second listen to our story, Have Sheep, Will Farm. We'll hear parts one and three in our series about a young farming family with a flock of sheep on a quest for a farm of their own. And we hear the final installment in Harvest Public Media's series on food insecurity in the pandemic, a story on the federal government's free school lunch program for all students. That's all coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University was built. I'm Kate Young. You're listening to Earth Eats. And Renee Reed is here with Earth Eats News. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Our news today comes from Harvest Public Media and Chad Bouchard. Farmers in the South received the highest amount of federal aid from the trade war with China, according to a report by the Government Accountability Office. Bart Fisher is the co-director of the Agricultural and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M. He says counties with certain crops got higher payments than others. If you had a lot of cotton in your county, you ended up with a really big rate. If you had a lot of soybeans in your county, you ended up with a really big rate. But if you have wheat, if you have a lot of wheat in your county or a lot of corn in your county, the rate comes down considerably. The USDA paid out about a half million dollars more in 2019 compared to 2018. Texas, Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota received almost half of those payments. The Food and Environment Reporting Network, FERN, has been tracking coronavirus infections since April in the sectors of meatpacking, food processing, and farming. Reporter Leah Douglas gleans the data from local news reports, state and federal health offices, and sometimes companies to piece together a picture of how COVID-19 has gripped workers across the food system. The numbers are grim. Currently, more than 63,000 workers across three sectors have tested positive, and 267 have died. Out of that total, 213 were meatpacking workers, representing almost 80% of deaths. More than 100 meat processing plants operated by companies such as Smithfield and Tyson have had outbreaks of COVID-19. As Fern reported in September, several states, including Kansas and Arkansas, have rolled back recent efforts to boost reporting on outbreaks, making health information less transparent and more difficult for public health officials to tackle. Labor advocates cite crowded working conditions, lack of protection, and lack of workers' legal status as factors for higher infection rates in that sector. In California, A foster farm plant closed last month after nearly 400 workers tested positive and eight people died. In April, a massive outbreak at a Smithville meatpacking plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, sparked fresh calls from lawmakers for the Labor Department to explain how nearly 1,300 employees at one plant contracted coronavirus, killing four people. 
Workers from the Center for Disease Control had visited the plant and given instructions on how to protect employees and reduce transmission. But the lawmakers say those recommendations were later withdrawn or watered down. In late April, after intense lobbying from the meatpacking industry, President Trump signed an executive order naming meatpacking plants as critical infrastructure, which stalled efforts to close plants with coronavirus outbreaks. A report in September by the watchdog groups Public Citizen and American Oversight revealed a series of government email documents showing one week before the decision, the North American Meat Institute had drafted a document that was strikingly similar to the president's executive order. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Okay, so about 6 a.m., Brad gets up and he opens the back of the van and he said, I'm going to see how many sheep I can fit in the back of my van. So that was the plan. And then Greg came out. And it turns out he got 17 sheep into the back of the van. Yes. What kind of van are we talking about here? Chrysler Plymouth. Like, just, he took all the seats out and put up a gate, like a dog gate, in between the front two seats and the back. And they just kept jumping in. So he didn't mean to take that many. He only put in, like, two mamas. But then all the babies were like, where are they going? Where are they going? So they just jumped in and he was about to close the door and two more like just ran towards the van. So he's like, oh, and then let them in. So 17. (laughs) And then the drive over was absurd, right? Because it was raining off and on that day. And Fine the horse is in his trailer and they're all following each other. It's just out of control. Everybody lived though. We didn't have any losses. Lauren McAllister and Brett Volp are sheep farmers. They tend a flock of sheep, a heritage breed known as Jacob sheep. They're a smaller breed of sheep, but more like the size of goats. They're a more primitive breed. They don't, they don't need a lot. You just sort of move them around. To, they, they're really good at um, taking care of themselves, honestly. They have double horns. So. We have, they usually have four for us, but sometimes they can have six. Mm-hmm. Even the, the ewes will have horns. Yeah, and the wool is kind of like a mid-grade, so it's not as plush as, obviously, some of the other ones that are longer, but it's a great blend. Um, the length of it, texture, color. Um, There's like three colors, really, in this breed. Um, sometimes they have the white turns a little um, uh, purplish, like I think it's called lavender, and it's really interesting. So you might be asking yourself, why are they moving sheep in a Chrysler Plymouth minivan? Well, it's complicated. Because that's how we got the sheep. They were a wedding present. We got married. So that's how it all started. Yeah, we asked for farm animals (laughs) and plants for our wedding. (laughs) If anybody chose to, and a few did. When Brett and Lauren got married in 2013, they asked for farm animals. Half joking and half hoping someone would be crazy enough to give them some. And, well, their friend Marianne was game. At the time, they were renting. We were living in Brown County on uh, the old Needmore, Needmore community. And then we got married there and um, had the sheep, the beginning of our, our flock there for two years. And then we came here. We've been here for three and we're just about to move again. 
The here they are talking about is a rental property near Unionville, Indiana, with some land. And the owner was open to them having the sheep and their horse on the property. So they moved them. At the time, they only had a handful of sheep. Now the flock is up to 25. Brett and Lauren have a dream of farming, of raising a flock of sheep for wool and for meat. And that's not all. And then expand to three flocks. So we'll have a chickens, geese, and then the sheep. But Lauren and Brett don't have land. And they don't really have the money to purchase land. They aren't inheriting any land from relatives. They've already started their farm. They just don't have the farmland. Yet. So they decided to pursue an FSA loan and to find out if it was possible for them to purchase their own land. In a three-part series we're calling Have Sheep, Will Farm, Earth Eats follows Lauren and Brett and their family on a journey as young farmers with animals looking to secure some land of their own. This property is 400 acres. It's beautiful. It's mostly um, woods. So there's a there's a hay field over there that you may have passed when you came. That's still this property, but not not where I keep the animals. So the part where you pasture them is much smaller than yeah, that. It's probably four or five acres each paddock, and then and then this area back here, when those get um, eaten down, I move them uh, randomly through this this field. been sold here and so we needed to find another place and which in some ways pushed us forward into thinking more about marketing our farm not just for ourselves ourselves and friends and trade or anything like that but just actually trying to uh, find a place where we could <laughs> finally do farming as as at least um, uh, adding to our uh, our income <laughs> Full time now, so I have many, many um, uh, pursuits, and some of some of them pay more than others. I'm an artist, and uh, I'm learning massage therapy also. So farming, and she's a she's a yoga instructor now too, and personal trainer. We're trying to sort of make our home space pay off in a in a way to keep us there. We spoke with Bobby Booz, who is a local, amazing. She's a legend. And she suggested that we reconsider what we've been doing and think about being a, a beginning farm. <laughs> and that was really beautiful for her to see us that way. What was your long-term goal when you first started? Yeah, we were doing it for ourselves, really. My dad's a veterinarian, so I've grown up with animals and a little bit of farming uh, interest and just learn, you know, wanting to uh, take care of ourselves better wanting to learn more like if I was going to continue to eat meat I wanted to eat meat that I knew about that I actually raised and um, took care of and knew how it was um, treated and slaughtered and just learn more about things that um, I feel like we're losing as a culture to technology and the way things run everybody's got to be very specialized and I don't I just don't want to do that I want to learn a lot of things and be able to help myself and others be more more uh, independent what what about your family's background? Do they have farming? Well, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so when I was a kid, my grandmother's cousins had a chicken farm. And I remember distinctly a lot of the things that we got was because we were trading that chicken. 
um, for the other things. Milk. I remember going to the grocery store once and we had a tab. I didn't even know what that was. But it was because they were selling the chickens to the grocery store. And so we could go in and buy the things that we wanted. When I was growing up, my grandmother's garden was huge. And it was not about the food. It was about her relationship with the land and her community. You know, we can all agree we like food. <laughs> Let's sit down. So you really don't think it was about the food? Like she didn't have special dishes that she made or she didn't love the fresh sun-ripened tomato or anything? No. <laughs> no, that was not it. Um, she, like many... Yeah, she cooked three meals a day for 12 people. Um, but it wasn't about if this tomato was organic right. or local. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was more, yeah, about... Yeah, and her bringing, bringing that food to the church or bringing that food to feed the hungry. Um, or bringing her bringing people to her garden yeah like as a social space that's really interesting yeah it was cool so one thing that one sense that i'm getting just talking to you guys out here with the sheep in the background and everything (laughs) is that you seem to take a lot of joy in this endeavor it's it's a passion yeah definitely it's really enjoyable it really is you you think like oh god i gotta go shear the sheep you know it's it weighs on you for a minute and it's really hard. I've been, I wrangle uh, them by myself and hold them to shear them. I have to, I mean, it is intense. But I, at the end of that day, whether you did two or, I don't know, five or so was the most I did in a day. Because it's, it's hard work. But you really, you like the smell of the animal, the, you know, you, you, you help them out by trimming their nails, making sure they're healthy, look at their teeth, all these things that you don't do for um, a lot of the year to, you know you don't you don't corral them and and really get real one-on-one with them uh it's just satis- it's just satisfying there's something about it that's uh getting sweaty and um a really an intimate connection with them even though they don't necessarily like that uh you yeah it's it's you just learn a lot you just like hands on in anything actually you know using your your intellect and your your body um is fun at the end of the day yeah and i think there's something interesting about having a relationship with something that's not human you know you have to interact in a new way when they get out and brett has me come out and help him i have to like get really primal and think okay if i was a sheep i would not want to be ran at or i wouldn't want to have this experience and so you can't just talk them into going the way that you want you have to step lightly you have to keep eye contact you have to be really aware of how they're feeling sometimes when it's really hot they just shake you know and you have to be still enough to watch them do that and notice and humans aren't we don't really take that time a lot of the time i think yeah they're really interesting creatures just sitting here listening to listening to them tear grass and chew it is it's like a meditation you you can uh you just it's just really nice it's just something going on that you wouldn't um, realize unless you spent, you know, at least five to 20 minutes out here, um, being quiet, paying attention and that, you know, they're really, they do have different personalities and, and watching how, uh, how a flock interacts with their, um, young ones and their, the way their, their pecking order is and all that is really, uh, it's just interesting. That's all. I mean, I'm hardcore about local stuff. You know, I think, 
75 miles is far enough. I think you should be able to get everything you need to eat close by from people that you know. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people used to have small farms, you know, not these giant um, monocrop farms that took over 10 family farms, you know. We, we aren't looking to have 300 head. That's not, you know, that's not the goal. It's really a sustainable... And that would be hard on the land, too. One of the things we don't want to, to do, we want to diversify the, the, the possibilities on a, on a small piece of land. The, the place we're trying to move to, if it all works out, is uh, 25 acres, and it used to be a cattle farm. A small one, though. Uh, so there's a sort of a diversity of pasture and and wooded um, pasture even. It's very hard to get started in homesteading with um, without land, without a place to live, and yeah, somebody in- investing in you. It's it's not easy, so. That's the best part about this new opportunity because we'd be able to do all the things we've been talking about and really settle down, putting in the orchard, putting in a pond, all the things that would create this ecosystem that we can't do when we rent, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a big step, but I think that especially after talking to the FSA loan manager, she was like, you're ready for this. And we're like, oh, yeah, I guess we're ready. <laughs> so that was nice. Okay, so I don't know much about FSA loans. Can you either of you walk me through that a little bit? Tell me what, what it is. It's a lot like FHA loans where they're reaching out to help people get home ownership, but this is just more focused on agriculture. So we're submitting a business plan and talking about profit and how we're going to sustain not just paying their loan, but also how we're going to contribute to the community. I think it's a great opportunity for beginning farmers, and that's kind of who they're targeting, but also minorities and women. Um, I think that that's something that they're interested in. And Indiana doesn't have a lot of participation in that way, beginning farmers. um, Most people are already established, so I think we're kind of coming into a scenario that is attractive because there aren't a lot of applicants. There aren't a lot of people seeking out this really specific loan. There's some wonderful details too, about like not having a, needing to have a down payment for what you're doing and the way you pay it back is once a year instead of a monthly situation. So there's a lot of um, benefit to people getting started in farming. Uh, they really work with you, I think. Yeah, and our loan officer, ran a farm so she's not a banker right she's coming from the perspective of i understand what you're going through i started off the same way that you did and hoping to support us throughout the whole process which i love when we had this conversation it was almost two years ago now their lease was up and they needed to move but they were still in the process of securing the loan for the land they hoped to purchase we still have an appraisal to do there and the title insurance stuff and and the close the actual closing could, yeah, and, and we're working with the government, so that takes a little bit longer. Um, they do things very um, precisely, and yeah, but we're right at the point where our application is almost completely finished as of tomorrow, and then they'll review it um, and give us an answer. I think this week, by this week. But the first step we had to do was get a purchase agreement. So a lot of it. Yeah, That's the big part of it. So even if you get all of this together and you're so excited and you've got this great plan, you have to find the property first, and then you have to secure the purchase agreement from the owner. 
definitely yeah. a barrier that you have to find the land first and i mean that that's difficult and brett was you know brilliant he found this online at like 9 15 a.m <laughs> right after he came came on that day because we'd been searching hard for rentals for you know to accommodate a farm which mm-hmm. is ridiculous yeah. or um trying to buy a place after we found out that we could buy a place if we got a loan so i was like really really moving on that and you know things just cost so much uh a house a decent house to live in which we certainly need and then land five acres was our budget and then we found this place that that needed um work although it's got good bones really um and 25 acres we'd like to eventually um, try to grow hemp if our state allows that and they're close to that so um, having 25 or more acres you know around you is really important to to be able to do something like that for yourself and the the community really the perfect place for us for our for this fantasy or dream that we're creating uh it was the right everything as long as all the little pieces fit it's you know the loan and the the moving and if is yeah we're crossing our fingers we are so so hopeful and so close that um we can taste it okay so what about that part where they move all those sheep in a minivan we'll get to that eventually In the second part of our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm, we spoke with loan officer Kathleen Walters to learn more about the FSA loans and what they could mean for Lauren and Brett's farming dreams. You can find that story on our website at eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll hear part three in our series as we follow Lauren and Brett on their quest for a farm of their own. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note with previews, food stories, and recipes directly in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. Earth Eats is a show about food and farming. When we talk about farming, there's so much to explore behind the scenes. In our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm, we're taking a look at what it takes to start a farm from scratch. Farms are often handed down through families, but not always. This is a story about one couple without an inheritance and their path to farming their own land in Southern Indiana. In the first episode of Have Sheep, Will Farm, which you heard in the first part of our show today, we met Lauren McAllister and Brett Volp. For those of you just tuning in, they're beginning farmers with two kids, Ramona and Jasper. They started their farming practice before they had land of their own. It started with a wedding gift. Oh, it started with a wedding gift. I love that. That's like the beginning of our book. I like that. Starting with a wedding gift, two mamas and a you. 
Remember the Jacob sheep? They're a smaller breed with at least two sets of horns and unusual colors of wool. They're a more primitive breed. They don't they don't need a lot. Yeah, and the wool is kind of like a mid-grade. Um, there's like three colors really in this breed. Um, sometimes they have the white turns a little uh, purplish, like I think it's called lavender. Lauren and Brett are raising them for wool and for meat. They were living and farming on rented land outside of Unionville and had grown the flock to over 20 sheep. When the landowner sold the property, it threw them into a crisis. Their friend Bobby Booz, an experienced farmer, suggested they were ready to start seeing themselves as beginning farmers, and she recommended they seek out an FSA loan to purchase some land of their own. In part two of our series, I spoke with Lauren and Brett's loan officer, Kathleen Walters. I'm Kathleen Walters, and I work with the Farm Service Agency, and I'm a farm loan officer. Kathleen works with the Farm Services Office that serves Monroe County. She walked us through the ins and outs of FSA loans, and it looked like Lauren and Brett were well-positioned for this type of loan. They already had a few years of farming experience under their belts, enough to know what they were getting into. The FSA loan requires a farm business plan. They call their business Three Flock Farm, and their plan includes six elements, sheep, geese, and chickens, those are the three flocks, and then ginger, mushrooms, and herbs. The sheep will provide meat and wool. Mostly we'll be using the geese and the chicken for eggs. I'm not sure we'll be slaughtering them at all, really. And then um, the herbs are medicinal. The mushrooms, in a sense, are medicinal too. Lauren and Brett are particularly interested in cultivating lion's mane mushrooms. This type of mushroom is currently being explored for its potential in improving neuronal health. Early studies look promising for those experiencing signs of dementia. And the mushroom's wellness potential is what excites Brett and Lauren. Business planning isn't entirely new territory for them. Lauren has an undergraduate degree in business. I think part of why I'm so excited is because you know, I went to undergrad and I did that thing with the four years and I know what I want to do and I went into business. And then I kind of didn't and everything changed and my priority shifted to growing my own food and sharing the resources I have. And so to create a business plan was almost like the culmination of all the training I had done, but for what I actually wanted. And so I feel like when we put that business plan together, it was easy to do in that sense because I had the tools and I had the why. And so when Kathleen said to me, you know, this is a really great plan, I thought, of course, <laughs> because it's not coming from a task. It's not someone else's goals. It's ours. It's, it's, it's a objective that we feel passionate about really gave us more confidence because we were like, oh, we have, we were like, oh, we're farmers. Oh, and it's like, because it was just a normal thing. That was our regular life. And then this program's telling us not only does it have value, we want you to do more of it. Sure. Yes. <laughs> but finding land and securing a loan takes time. Where would they live? And where would they keep the animals in the meantime? They found a house to rent in town for their family and the two dogs. But what about the sheep and the horse? With the help of our friend Greg, who's incredible, he found a place that our sheep could stay along with Fine the horse until we can close on our new house. 
our friend Dwight is thinking about becoming a sheep farmer. And so he said, can I kind of have like a practice round with your sheep? And he had all this land that needed to like have mowed down. You know, this is what animals are for. That's what husbandry is so beautiful because they're doing the things, taking down some locusts. I think he had a lot of invasives that he just wanted to get rid of. And they took him down in days. I mean, we should have taken before and after photos because the sheep were so vicious like they just took all everything down to the ground so he's thrilled he's going to turn over that land and make more beds for his farm so having a transition place for the animals was crucial to the process and so was finding a place to set their sights on securing the land so quickly allowed us to feel comfortable even getting this transition space and even considering continuing to farm because frankly if this program hadn't come up at the time that it did we would have stripped back. We probably would have butchered a lot of them and only kept a few of them and tried to rent out in Gosport or something because we didn't want to shut down, but renting is not conducive to animals of any kind. They found a place near Ellettsville, which is just outside of Bloomington. 25 acres. And, you know, it's a nice limestone veneered home from the from built in 58. Uh, it has a full basement. It has It had good bones. They secured a purchase agreement with the owner, that's required for an FSA loan application, and filled out all of the paperwork for the loan. When we heard from their loan officer, Kathleen, in the last episode, they were approved, but they hadn't closed yet. This kind of like turned the corner when she said to us, you've got your loan approved. That was the biggest moment because it said to us, one, we can move forward, we don't have to butcher more than a couple of this year, two, that the expansion can happen, right? That we can keep breeding and we can continue to grow. And then the third thing is really that we're feeling supported. The research that Kathleen has to do to kind of justify the loan demonstrated what our business plan put out there. So Kathleen really solidified those future plans and dreams that we had. Spoiler alert, it all worked out. They got the land. Lauren and Brett have a farm of their own. I met up with Brett out at Dwight's place a few days after closing. It was sheep moving day again. If you recall, they had already done this in the back of a Chrysler minivan. This would hopefully be the last time. When I arrived, Brett was corralling the flock using his movable fencing system. He hoped to make two trips with roughly 12 sheep for each trip. He backed the van up and secured the fencing close to the back of the van doors flung open. He encouraged them to head towards the van, and he opened a small tub of minerals to entice them into the van. Apparently, they crave these minerals, and they can be a strong motivator. These sheep weren't having it. They were reluctant to hop up into the van. Brett knew he only needed to convince one to get into the van, and more would follow. But they were being stubborn. Eventually, one hopped in, and a few more, but then one would jump out, and then another, and then they'd jump back in. It was comical, if not slightly frustrating. Brett displayed a saintly level of patience with the creatures, but at one point, he grabbed a particularly fickle ram and lifted him quite awkwardly into the van and slammed the door shut behind him. That was 12. We were ready to roll. He secured the fencing for the remaining sheep, and we headed out to the road. 
I try to just coax them, you know? Yeah. You just want to take it easy. Don't, don't spook them. But every once in a while, you have to catch one. <laughs> Would you call that one? He's a bit of a clown, yeah. He's a little goofy, I think. The last one to go in? Yep. The, the what was he? He was probably the 10th one, and then the... Uh, then he was the 12th one, and then the 13th, and then he got out again. He's back in, in and out. Yeah. Once we got going, it was remarkably quiet, considering there were 12 sheep and two humans in a Chrysler minivan. The new place is only six minutes from Dwight's where the sheep had been staying. The trip was uneventful and brief especially compared to the day when Brett brought his horse to the new place. Uh, yeah, I ended up walking him from Dwight's here. It's like six miles, but it was it's along the, the old railroad tracks that are going to be a trail to Ellettsville. So he lived right off of that, and I was like, oh, that'd be fun to just walk, walk my horse. It's like, well, it's like a coming home thing with my horse and like seeing this place and being, a, yeah, just having more of a connection to the land around as well as giving my horse like uh, an exercise <laughs> and like, hey, we're going somewhere and this is where we're going to end up. Once we arrive and Brett opens the back of the van, the sheep tumble out into the grass with no hesitation at all. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Getting them out was rather uneventful. They yeah. just kind of left out, yeah, and that was no that. <laughs> He's starting them in a patch of land close to the house. It doesn't take them long to start grazing. Must feel good to be. That feels really great. Yeah, that was a lot of stress, but yeah, it worked really well. Now we can put all our energy into making this a home, which will take a while. The house needs some work before move-in, but it won't be long now. After a short break, we'll join Lauren and Brett once they've moved into their new place to hear more about dreams come true. check back in with Lauren and Brett once the whole family has moved in. It's a few months later, and it's lambing season. Standing on the edge of a pasture with their young son, Jasper, I spot a few of the babies. The was just looking at us. He has been bottle feeding my dad because he keeps kicking her away. Oh, interesting. Does that just happen sometimes? Yeah. Actually, it's it's it cap it happens all the time until she she's older. She's gonna start to eat grass. Okay, so you just have to bottle feed her till she's ready for grass. Yeah. We call her Finder. 
Uh-huh. Why find her? Because she, she's good at finding things. And she, she sometimes nibbles on her hands. Brett comes out of the house with a bottle. It's time for Finder's feeding. Come on, little one. This is my baby. She thinks that she she thinks I'm her mom, definitely. First couple weeks, I was feeding her every four hours through the night too. And that was my first time doing that. It's not the not the most fun. <laughs> But I got out to see the night sky a lot. You didn't just keep her in the house with you? I did after the first uh, couple days. But at first I wanted her to, to, I wanted to see if I could get the mother to take her back. And it's important to get the colostrum from the mother the first couple days. So I just left her out and the mother pinned up with her and would actually hold the mother for her to, to suckle for two days. It was kind of fun. It gave me an excuse to camp out. Carpenter for many years before we took this project on. Inside the house, I sit down with Lauren and Brett to reflect on all that's happened. I would love to hear from you how you're feeling now. <laughs> this has been difficult. The whole process. Uh, very thankful for it. Thankful for the opportunity of the FSA loan and all of that, but it's, um, I don't know, because I was in school and just finally took my state qualifying exam, but um, the amount of work we had to do on the house and pay for two places while we while we rented and lived here, the opportunity was great, but it was really hard and has still is to keep our uh, head above water, financially especially. It's like, it's just, I guess it's like this everywhere. It's just, it was really hard. And, it, and I think hopefully we can, uh, come out of this and have a little more breathing room I don't for I don't know if I can foresee that honestly um, I don't know how long it'll take to feel solvent or whatever but it's it's uh yeah I mean every I think everybody goes through this anyway renting or buying a, just buying a house but um, we're glad for the opportunity to have more than just a house and to continue farming and all that um, and do more farming than we, we ever have as well. So I think it's growing pains, honestly. It feels really awkward to think, like, this is how adolescence is, where we got a lot of responsibility all of a sudden and realized how much it took to take care of it and, like, the focus and the energy that needed to be there so that we were supporting it and thinking in longevity, not just, like, how we're going to pay the taxes this year, but maybe thinking, like, five years from now or even how we'll label the food and who we'll work with. And our experience with the sheep, making sure that that's really sound. We're not just getting involved in breeding, but like maintaining their health and their happiness. Yeah, I think they struggled more this year than ever with the move and just the, the lack of fencing, uh, the lack of good graze here. It'll take a few years to establish that. When I spoke with them, Lauren had just secured a grant from SARE which stands for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. Her grant is to research a method using spent grains, which is a byproduct of the beer brewing process, as a substrate for growing mushrooms. I couldn't imagine when she would find the time for this project. Well, my husband says I'm going to do it on Sundays because I'm going to be home more on Sundays. 
So, Kate, the short answer is Sundays. Sunday is Sarah Grande. There you go. <laughs> and it's not like Lauren and Brett are home on the farm every day. Their kids have school and activities in town, and they're both working jobs off-farm, especially Lauren. So I work full-time at IU. <laughs> I'm there 40 hours a week, and then I work at the SRSC teaching yoga. And then I teach yoga at the Monroe County Public Library, which I love. It's prenatal <laughs> on, Friday, on Monday nights. And then... I teach at Vibe, and yeah, I'm doing a lot to kind of support the long-term bills that we have outside of what we're putting in. So when we're talking about investing in the house, not just like finishing things, but finding solutions to problems that we discovered as we move through, like, oh, surprise, that pipe needs to be replaced, all of it, now. Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about the investment of money, and I get how how real and immediate that is. But to me, the time, when I think about working full-time, raising a kid, going to school, having other stuff, any one of these projects that I could see in this room feels overwhelming. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. There's... <laughs> that's what's blowing my mind because it's like you asked for a a house did you with a big farm did you oh there you go and it's like well crap i did ask specifically for this and here i have it and now i have to put even more energy and focus than when i was dreaming of it to like make it real and like translate all that time into like finished walls but more importantly a home and i think that's I think that there was a lot of imposter syndrome at the beginning because we're thinking like, we aren't really farmers. Who got this loan? What are you talking about? Like, who are these people? Like, are we these people? And um, we've been them the whole time, honestly. And a home of their own isn't their only dream. They're hoping for community involvement and have already had a group out on the land planting fruit and nut trees. They want the farm to become a healing retreat space. Remember, Brett is a massage therapist and Lauren is a yoga instructor, and they have a passion for medicinal foods and herbs. Lauren is also thinking about what it means to be a black woman owning farmland in light of the history of racial discrimination that has pushed so many black families off the land. And the way that Jasper's going to grow up as a black boy, his interaction with land and nature and farm is also important to me. So it's all wrapped together because we are an interracial couple, we're in a mixed family. They're looking into what it means to commit the land to a trust of some kind, to preserve their long-term vision for generations to come. Since this series first aired, Three Flock Farm has joined the People's Cooperative Market in Bloomington and Lauren has partnered with the Plant Truck Project, a black, indigenous, and people of color-led food initiative in Bloomington and Ellettsville. They're cultivating produce, herbs, and flowers on Three Flock Farms land with a mission rooted in food justice and access for people who have historically been denied land and food sovereignty. Check the website for a photo of Lauren, Brett, and Jasper, and of Finder, the baby lamb. Find that at eartheats.org.
the summer, schools and other community sites that offer children free meals saw soaring demand. Now school's in session, and this term at least, meals remain free for all kids. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer reports that's because with tens of millions of children relying on school meals, the federal government is extending pandemic support. For now. School meals contribute significantly to alleviating childhood hunger. But normally, a family has to apply for their children to get a free or reduced price meal. The U.S. Department of Agriculture relaxed rules in March, including making meals free for all children. It recently announced those pandemic provisions will stay in place. Kim Belstein is the food service director for the belmont Clemmy Community School District in North Iowa. She says on a call with others about the extension, one caveat loomed large. They'll be free until December 31st or until funds run out. So what if you continue to feed and then find out that, oh, they ran out of money in October and you fed through November? Districts and families could be caught with a debt they weren't expecting to owe. Belmont Clemmy is in a county where recently more than 50% of students qualified for free or reduced price meals. Belstein says the district is committed to feeding every child, regardless of ability to pay. Not all districts can afford that. Lunchtime at the elementary school looks different this fall. Everyone's wearing a mask or face shield. Children enter the lunchroom but don't stay long. They walk down and grab their milk and then come through the line and we have everything in a bag at that point for them. Pizza dippers. Pizza, pizza dippers. They're like, they're called pizza The hot entree is wrapped in foil and added to a paper bag that today has cantaloupe slices, baby carrots, chips, and a granola bar. There's no salad bar or any self-serve. Other than type of milk, the kids have no choices. and they take their milk and sack lunch back to the classroom to eat. Ongoing free meals is a victory for the School Nutrition Association, which lobbied hard for the extension. In this economy, we've seen a dramatic increase in food insecure families. We know millions more kids will depend on school meals this year. Spokesperson Diane Pratt Hebner says whether in the building or at home, kids can't learn when they're hungry. And this year, we're asking so much more of our students. They have to figure out distance learning or modified school day schedules. We should not allow them to worry about whether they'll get a healthy meal. And so many families need help. In June, Illinois served almost 11 million meals, more than seven times the 2019 figure. Iowa served more than four times as many meals. Lunchtime Solutions is a private food service company that contracts with schools in several Midwest states. Even as they provided meals during the summer, Heather Wall says the company prepared a base menu for fall with extreme flexibility. It could be adapted very easily depending on what the district's mitigation efforts were and change, I mean, change almost um, instantaneously. Meals have to work in the lunchroom, the classroom, or the to-go bag. Menus are designed to have one home style, one hot kind of convenience type of food um, that is really kid friendly, um, like chicken nuggets or cheeseburgers, that kind of thing. And then one um, deli sandwich. Or some other cold option. Plus, always milk, fruit and vegetables. At Belmont Clemmy Junior Senior High, Kim Belstein sends out a few meals each day for students learning online. The rest are delivered to students in their classrooms to avoid congestion in the halls and cafeteria. She says if a COVID-19 exposure quarantines kids at home, as has already happened to the football team, 
Her staff will provide pickup meals for families that want them. Despite the changes and challenges, she says her mission remains crystal clear. It's just what we do. No matter how you get them fed, you just feed them. She's confident no one is going hungry. Oh, and she says the kids are actually happier with fresh raw vegetables than a cup of steamed peas. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. That was the final installment in Harvest Public Media's series on food insecurity and the pandemic. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's all we have time for today. I'm Kate Young. Thank you for listening to Earth Eats. you found us on Twitter? Follow at EarthEats to stay up to date on food and farming news, seasonal recipes, food justice stories, and so much more. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at EarthEats. We even have a YouTube channel with a new recipe video for savory hand pies. Just search for EarthEats. EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Lauren McAllister, Brett Volpe, Kathleen Walters, and Jasper. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.